Centuries of freedom have taught us to think in terms of continuous improvement of an always better future. Hello, everyone, and welcome again to the Decrypting Crypto Podcast. I'm Austin Knight, and I am joined, as always, by my co-host, Matthew Howells-Barbie. Hey, Austin, and uh, hey to everyone listening, to all of our faithful followers of the podcast in amongst a time <laughs> that really requires a lot of dedication to, to say, this topic. <laughs> a certain amount of commitment. If you're still around, <laughs> if this topic is still interesting to you, we know that you are the real deal. Uh, with that said, after the sort of doom and gloom of last week's episode where we talked about that huge crypto price crash that was happening, which seems to be what we're always talking about, um, we might have some slightly more positive news. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's probably not it's probably not anything to get carried away with at this point. Um, but Bitcoin did have its largest single day gain in price since April of this year. So since April 2018. Yeah, so this was on November 28th, uh, which was last Wednesday, 2018. Make sure you're listening in the right year. (laughs) Um, And Bitcoin's price actually closed the day at $4,257, which was an 11.43% rise over a period of 24 hours. So what you're telling me, Austin, is everything's going to be okay. We're going to be back up on the moon in no time, right? Don't get too excited, Matt. Um, I don't. I mean, it was definitely. Yeah, it's it's technically. This is like a very technical gain, I would say. Um, it was it was technically an eleven point four three percent rise. But like, if you look at the the graph over the course of the last three months, if you blow that out to the last year, it's it is a, a pretty overwhelming downward trend. Um, even with that growth on November 28th, I think uh, I, I would call it still somewhat gloom and doom. But yeah. um, as we've always kind of chatted uh, 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 in regards to this topic, it's it feels more like a correction than mm-hmm. anything else. Um, at least that's what I'm going to keep telling myself. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's what we all keep telling ourselves. Tell yourself that and never look at the price. They're the two yeah. ways to remain <laughs> perfectly ignorant within this space and feel like everything's okay uh well i mean so on so last wednesday yeah you mentioned was it 4257 usd it closed the day on looking at the price as of recording today and we're on monday december 3rd um right now uh it's about $3,854. It's still up week over week, actually. So in all fairness, there has still been positive signs. But like you say, um, certainly in the past 24 hours from when we're recording, it's dipped down a little bit. And certainly on the month, we're down, I think, tracking around 35%. That yeah. said, one one thing to just take a, a bit of a step back as well, there, there has been some more positive signs in the wider tech stock market as well um, over the past one to two weeks. I mean, we were talking about uh, the last couple of episodes, the the huge tech stock sell-off. There's been recoveries on a lot of the major US tech stocks from the losses that they had in November, most of those wiping out most of the gains that the, the big tech stocks 
had made over the over the past year. But there seems to be some upward movement there. Maybe there's a bit more confidence jumping back in and maybe just what we need going into the new year. <laughs> <laughs> Not quite like last year, but uh yeah. we're still we're still positive. <laughs> we are. We remain positive. We remain pushing out podcast episodes. And yes. uh, like you said, Austin, if people are still listening right now, we know that they're about the technology and just the price. Because otherwise, at this point, you have just got to hate yourself to keep listening to us. So, <laughs> <laughs> all right. Why don't we jump into some of the main stories and uh, and pieces of news that we've been discussing that have come up over the past week or so. Okay, so the first kind of, I'm, I'm going to call this a story. It's not necessarily a story, uh, as in the traditional method being pushed out by a publication, but this was a very interesting tweet that me and you were talking about in our own little crypto Slack channel that we have. Um, and this was posted out by Chainstarter, and we'll share the link to this tweet. But what the the... The description of the tweet here was uh, these 24 ICOs raised 2.8 billion US dollars. And as of right now, they have almost zero trading volume. That is incredibly worrying uh, to, yeah. to see. We, I feel like we've talked about ICOs a bunch. And just for anyone listening that isn't necessarily... Uh, down with a lot of the uh, financial lingo here, just when we're talking about trading volume, if there is zero trading volume, what we're saying here is that no one is trading uh, any of the the cryptocurrency. So if one order was made of, say, 100,000 USD worth of a cryptocurrency, the trading volume would be 100,000. So if it's zero, it's pretty much close to being said that there is zero trade activity, zero interest, and is pretty much dead. I've got the list up, and when you look at some of the amount of money that these projects have raised from everyday people, not just institutional investors, primarily individuals, wow, there is not a lot going on, right? Yeah, I mean, you've got some of these projects were single-handedly worth, one of them is $575 million dollars. <sighs> Another is $420 million. And even the smallest ones on the list are about $50 million a pop. So mm -hmm. um, that's, it's, yeah, that is, uh, that's pretty crazy to think about. Um, the, the number one reply to this tweet was just LOL in all caps. And I, think <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, I don't know what else to say. I, I think that that's the only way that you can react to something like this because it's so uh, disturbing, but also it has become so predictable uh, in the world of ICOs. It's almost a meme at this point. Oh man, I that that has actually tickled me a lot. <laughs> I think that's like the perfect <laughs> response to this. I, if you don't laugh, you you cry, and I think yeah. this is the perfect example now. I mean, some of the the cryptocurrencies on the list showing incredibly low trading volumes. I seem to remember people talking about a ton uh, last year. Actually, one that stands out to me is uh, Paragon, and I remember this project, which was. I believe, focused around buying up 
co-working space for cannabis startups and then using blockchain technology to help within like the supply chain around cannabis. I remember getting emails around this and it was similar with uh, Bankera was another one. It was just my inbox getting spammed with the least legit looking emails I've ever seen in my life asking if I want to invest in this ICO. And looking back on these now, I kind of feel like I almost had some blindness to how crazy spammy these were looking because of just the comparison against some of the even worse projects there. Mm-hmm. Um, but, oh man, I... To, I, I I really wonder like how some of the some of those people that have invested in them are feeling right now because I think it's one thing if you've loaded up heavily last year, for example, on let's say Bitcoin. I think you can take some solace in the fact that if you do believe that you're in it for the long term, that realistically, Bitcoin, if if cryptocurrency fails, then I think. Bitcoin is the the thing that fails, right? Like that causes yeah. the knock-on effect. I think if Bitcoin win, uh, if cryptocurrency wins out and adoption is mass, I do believe that Bitcoin is going to be in and amongst it. Now, yeah. would I feel the same if I've invested a ton into Wax or Press One or Ucash or Neuromation, right? Like I don't think I would feel as good about that. Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, it, it, something that this uh, chart that we'll link to um, really highlights for me is just how many projects there were that I wasn't even aware of that were raising a ton of money and then have now uh, sort of trailed off into nothing. I think that the people that were hopefully purchasing um, crypto in this space knew to a degree, what they were getting into with uh, high risk, high potential for uh, return or high potential for no return, <laughs> mm, um, yep. but high risk nonetheless, right? Uh, so it is. it feels a little bit different than Bitcoin to me, which is already, it's widely known that the, that's a very high risk uh, asset as well. Um, this sort of, you know, it, I, I would consider this like an order of magnitude more intense um, yeah. uh, of an investment uh, approach. But at any rate, yeah, it, it hasn't worked out very well for these projects. And that's not something that is by any stretch of the imagination atypical in the ICO space. Interestingly, um, Matt, when you were talking about Paragon, somebody did reply to that tweet and said that they had been dinged by the SEC um, oh really? I, yeah, I don't know. It, like, I, I'm just seeing that right now on the tweet, so I don't know what the story to that is. But it would be interesting to know, like, for each of these projects, <laughs> what the rationale is. I mean, I you know, I I could imagine a, a few of them may have been dinged by the the SEC, but that can't be the case for you know all 24 of yeah. these um, that we're looking at. So very very interesting. Yeah. And I think that like, this is only the tip of the iceberg, right? Like when you're looking at some of the projects that have, uh, that have just straight up died, I think now we're well over a couple of hundred already since 2017. So there's a lot of money lost there. Um, but actually, what, it, it, while you mentioned the SEC, there's a, the, the next story that, that we're, we're going to talk about c- touches upon this. And it involves two of my favorite people. 
probably both of our favorite people, Austin, right? DJ Khaled, a man popular for shouting his name over music that's been made popular by other people. <laughs> and Floyd Mayweather, the professional boxer now known for getting into the ring with washed up MMA fighters for obscene amounts of money. <laughs> so two two names that are just synonymous with cryptocurrency. And the reason why we're mentioning these two wonderful characters uh, is that the SEC has just charged them, which I'm sure we're all very sad about. Um, and this is because they were promoting ICOs, uh, the same ICO, actually. It was one individual project. And they did not disclose, shock, that they were being paid for these promotions. Um, and this all focused around the Centra ICO, uh, which coincidentally is not doing so well itself. So this has been a a somewhat uh, enjoyable story, actually, for of redemption uh, in amongst all of this, um, or at least justice, should I say? Justice, I would say. Yeah, I mean, this is this reminds me of when we were also talking about um, the that story of uh, the researchers that went through and tried to pay a bunch of publications in the crypto space um, yeah. to to publish articles uh, on on behalf of their ICO or their project without disclosing that they were paid to do it. And there were some big publications that came back with a price, um, publications that I think a lot of people thought that they could trust. And there's been way too much of this sketchy stuff uh, in this space, and it has reinforced the scam economy. Uh, yeah. you could say. Yeah. I mean, Floyd Mayweather on his Twitter, he, uh, literally said in regards to Centra's ICO, it starts in a few hours, get yours before they sell out. I got mine. And he was apparently paid to say that DJ Khaled called it a game changer on his social media accounts. I'm sure um, that they both know all of the technical details. Exactly what that means. Yeah. <laughs> a game changer for what in DJ Khaled? It, that's what I want to know is like, what what is this a game changer about DJ Khaled? How are you using this? <laughs> like, uh, it, I think it, it was a game changer for DJ Khaled in a way because he was paid $50,000 to say that. <laughs> and he didn't tell anybody about it. And the SEC is just so, so thrilled about that. And Floyd Mayweather was actually paid apparently $100,000 yeah. for uh, his promotion. A single tweet. ICF. Yeah, maybe, un- maybe oh, Austin, man, this, is... this podcast will launch us into Twitter fame to the level where we can be paid $100,000 to send out a single tweet. That would definitely be a game changer for us, I think. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's uh, you know, $100,000 and you have to sacrifice all of your care for your audience in the process, which yeah. is, um, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I don't stand from a position where I could judge these people. Um, on that basis, because I don't know, you know, what it's like to be offered something like that. But I, mm-hmm. I surely don't like the look, and um, yeah. I, I don't, I, I feel bad, you know, for anybody that that may, you know, view these people as. Um, I mean, they have a lot of money. I'm, I'm pretty sure that money is Floyd Mayweather's middle name or something. Uh, yeah, like that. well, I, I think he's his his team money, which I'm yeah. sure are very customer centric, very much about their audience, not yeah. about money at all. Uh, so yeah, yeah, uh, Floyd May money Mayweather. Uh, I think it, he he literally could only be involved in stuff like this, in my opinion. <laughs> uh, 
Um, but it, but, it yeah. looks like it's not going to work out in their favor, right? Yeah. So the SEC has charged them. They're both going to be paying penalties. Mayweather's got to pay 300000 USD in disgorgement and a $300,000 penalty, um, plus like around fifteen k in interest. Um, so probably still a drop in the ocean for someone like Mayweather, but I think it's more the fact that um, they're coming down on on stuff like this, which is important. And honestly, I do think this spans way outside of just cryptocurrency. But as you say, this is just adding more fuel to the scam economy fire. And DJ Khaled, on the other hand, will pay uh, 50000 in disgorgement, a 100K penalty, and just under 3K in interest. But on top of this, another thing that's uh, been part of the the punishment is that Mayweather's agreed that he will not promote securities for three years uh, and to cooperate with the ongoing investigation. And DJ Khaled has agreed to a two-year ban. Uh, so they've been banned from promoting securities, which is bizarre that they would be any in any position of authority to be promoting securities anyway. Uh, but that to one side, <laughs> uh, the... This kind of follows on from uh, a, a, the, the project itself, Centra, the cryptocurrency. And I, I hope that none of you listening were unfortunate enough to be to have to have invested in this project, because um, which I'm sure there are tons out there. If the likes of Mayweather and Khaled have been promoting this with others, well, the the third. So two of their founders, I believe, were charged with securities fraud, and then the third uh, founder was also uh, was also charged with securities fraud. Uh, one part of all of the different fraud behind this was they lied about a ton of partnerships they had. They said that they had um, lined up uh, partnerships with Visa and Mastercard so that they were going to launch this like crypto credit card which i think was like the big part of like the central project they completely made that up they'd promoted that as a big part of the ico that they hadn't even spoken with mastercard and visa so yeah i think that that's that's one of many disappointing things happening in this space and i'd like to think that those things are getting weeded out but just to just to tie up this story i'd like to quote uh something that floyd mayweather once said and it was Things happen for a reason, and the only thing you can do is at nighttime get on your knees and ask God for forgiveness for anything that you did that didn't feel was right. So I guess I guess it turns out that on this time, uh, Floyd Mayweather had to get on his knees and beg for forgiveness from the SEC. So I hope that they're <laughs> I hope that they're feeling relatively uh, happy with themselves in all of this. And in general, I, I'd like to see more kind of clamping down on all of the kind of rogue advertising that's been going on in this space overall. Yeah. Ice cold, man. <laughs> <laughs> Laying it down. <laughs> yeah. Now, speaking of clamping down, uh, we Matt and I were recently discussing an interesting article, sort of just a thought exercise titled, Can Blockchain Help Brands Become GDPR Compliant? Um, mm. And Matt and I have, in our careers, had a lot of exposure to GDPR, but in case you're not familiar with it, GDPR is a, it's a law in the EU which regulates data collection and uh, data protection and privacy. Uh, it requires 
brands to do three main things. It's actually very complica complicated legislation, but just to kind of lay it out, <clears throat> um, it will require them to provide clear information about the type of data that it, they are collecting, and they have to obtain a user's explicit consent in order to do that. So you, you may have started to see this actually um, on the web that you're getting more and more <clears throat> like modals and pop-ups and stuff like that before you uh, even interact with a website or submit any information to that site. Um, they'll tell you, you know, we're, we're tracking your cookies, we're, we're using analytic systems to process this type of data, this is what we're doing with that data. Um, a lot of this is in reaction to GDPR. GDPR yeah. also requires that companies give users the right to access their personal data and see it, and then request corrections and or withdraw their permission to use that data, which is, um, that, that really, you know, shifts the way that, that businesses thought about using personal data for, for their consumers. And then going a step further, uh, they also have to delete their users and their customers' personal data once the need for its storage expires or uh, when the user withdraws their consent for the storage of that data. So basically, GDPR uh, it, it seeks to introduce a lot more transparency in terms of how businesses are collecting and using data. And then it seeks to give the, the rightful owner of that data, the person that that data is uh, based on, <clears throat> the user or the consumer in this case, uh, the right to access that data to correct that data or to have that data deleted and removed from the company's control altogether. Um, yeah. So, yeah. And this is, and one big thing with GDPR is this is a, this is a law that's uh, EU specific. So anyone within the EU that's in your database, regardless of whether you're a company in the EU, if you have anyone's data from within the EU, all of these apply. Now, if you're, you're the, the user or the customer's data is outside of the EU, you do not need to comply with these rules. Uh, yet, I would imagine we're going to see further global rollouts of some of these, these laws and legislations. Um, but the challenge that also comes with this, and I've had this firsthand experience uh, within uh, some of the work that I've been doing outside of the, the blockchain space, is that this also implies that you know where your user is from, right? Yeah. So it, for a lot of bigger businesses, when you think about risk management, there are some enormous fines that um, that can be put in place just simply for, I think, I seem to remember off the top of my head, I could be slightly wrong on this, but like the maximum fine per user record is something obscene like 10,000 euros or something. So like they can easily stretch into the millions. And I know there's some ongoing law, uh, lawsuits with some major tech names that are starting to happen now. But one of the big pieces here is, if you just have, say, name, email address of users and you don't know where their country of origin is, a lot of companies are saying, well, we're just going to have to apply these same laws to to everything within everyone within our database. And yes, yeah, you, as you mentioned, like if you're listening right now <laughs> and you've been online, especially if you've been involved in any of those Black Friday deals, you probably saw there was an <laughs> extra two or three tick boxes that you had to check on all of the different forms. And and that's a big piece. But I, it seems like the thing that we were talking about, Austin, was that final piece that you talked on. 
the and this is like the the law that you that some of our listeners may have heard of which is the right to be forgotten which basically stipulates that you should be able to delete all of your personal data that has been stored and it has to expire at some point as well that creates some problems in a permanent public ledger like blockchain because how does that happen <laughs> and that's a, that is a, that is an interesting that's an interesting thing for us to think about because while a company doesn't own your your data if you publish some data to the blockchain or someone publishes data to a public or private blockchain that blockchain is downloaded by any nodes or miners on the network is available on all of their local machines but also it's now set in stone and cannot be deleted at least in an easy way um so yeah I, i'm unsure i know that the article in forbes we were reading a bit about this outlines some interesting ideas for how this could be be done but that's definitely the biggest hurdle that a lot of people are seeing with blockchain and gdpr right yeah yeah, I think that thus far, just the the sort of immutable nature of blockchain technology, it's actually been a stumbling block to the GDPR regulations. Uh, and and I, that's in a way not necessarily you know uh, due to to GDPR, but it is it is by design, um, not as a reaction to GDPR, but it was by design. I think from the very beginning that no authority no authority could regulate a public blockchain and, you know, have the ability to delete data that was um, recorded on a, a public blockchain. That's kind of the whole point of the technology. Mm. Um, but that presents, of course, issues with blockchain in relation to GDPR. Classically, decentralized systems have been a bit of a gray area in terms of legislature. But now there's some interesting conversation happening around how maybe this could all be flipped on its head and blockchain could actually... Um, be, you know, we could change the way that we think about this and use blockchain uh, to comply perfectly with GDPR laws and and similar regulations that may pop up in other places throughout the world and, and sort of make this effectively, you know, a universal thing, especially in this context, the right to be forgotten. So yeah. uh, researchers from the University of Cambridge and the Queen Mary University of London have actually proposed what they're calling a new technical solution for private blockchains, and that private part is fairly important, mm -hmm. um, which would actually be able to incorporate the right to be forgotten rule. So the way that this would work is that instead of figuring out how to erase data from the blockchain, the researchers propose that you could delete relevant decryption keys mm. for certain Entries, yeah. This is this is a really interesting way uh, of sort of changing the way that um, you think about deletion in in the first place. So in this case, the data would actually remain recorded on the ledger, but it's like de facto deleted because it yeah. can't be accessed or decrypted without the decryption keys. Yeah, it's interesting. I wonder how they would actually delete the encryption keys, right? Because like you are still going to have. The the encryption keys themselves will exist. I'm assuming what we're talking about here, and I could be wrong. I'm assuming what we're talking about here is like, so you'll obviously have the public key, which is available, and they're going to get rid of the private keys. So they would show that they have basically 
deleted the private keys from their system. But, like, can you actually truly prove that someone could write that down yeah. like it can be written like if they ha- they could prove that they've removed it from their store uh, their servers or things like that but it still seems like it's not perfect yeah i i agree and i know that we've we've talked a lot about um you know the uh, unhackable nature of blockchain uh, tech, at least in comparison to, you know, similar alternatives. But I still think that from a user perspective, just sort of putting my UX hat on here, it it is a little bit disconcerting to know that the information still exists, even Mm -hmm. if it's theoretically inaccessible. It's sort of like, I remember 10 years ago, when I was, you know, wanting to delete my Facebook profile, I did all this research about like how deletion actually happens uh, yeah. inside the walls of Facebook, and w- what it um, amounted to at the time. I don't know if this policy has changed. Was um, that when you click that delete button on your profile, it deletes it from public all of your data from public view, and you can download that data and all everything. But the data actually still remains on Facebook's servers. It's just that it's mm. inaccessible. And then there's, you know, like theories that 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 data can can still be used to, uh, you know, track you over time, like through your friends because they knew who you were connected to and all this stuff. Who knows if anything that sophisticated was actually happening. But I remember that as a user, I had this sort of uncanny feeling walking away from that, you know, where like my stuff was never fully deleted and and that didn't feel right. So what I did, you know, as a paranoid person... um, with nothing actually to hide, but, you know, principles to, to carry around with me, I, I started like filling my profile with noise data, right? So, yep. so that it would, it would basically, you start adding a bunch of bullshit friends, posting a bunch of bullshit stuff, and you do that for six months. And then it doesn't matter if it gets deleted or not. It's not you anymore. <laughs> um, but I, I just remember, you know, how much of a pain that was. And I was just so motivated by the fact that my stuff was not going to be fully deleted. And, and, and that didn't feel right to me, right? right. Uh, and I think that this kind of still walks within that territory. So d- does that explain why you share and like all of Kim Kardashian's posts and <laughs> <Yeah>. religiously follow? <laughs> yeah. That's yeah, definitely what, why, just yeah. creating noise. Definitely creating noise. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that part was legit, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think this is this is an interesting piece because, like, theoretically, if that's the case, right, like, it still exposes you from a security point of view. If Facebook or a another company gets hacked and your data is still there, it can still be surfaced and extracted. And similarly. I think when we talk about this piece around deleting encryption keys, right? Like if you want your data deleted, it means that you do not want that exposed or used now, but also not in the future. And Mm -hmm. we talked about in series one, the threat very briefly of uh, quantum computing. And the general consensus among experts seems to be that quantum computing is a little way away. Um, Funnily enough, I was actually at uh, a conference uh, a few days ago and I was speaking to one of the team at IBM. Uh, We seem to continuously talk about IBM, but (laughs) they are one of the leading um, companies in the uh, quantum computing space. And they seem to believe it's a lot closer than I'd first thought. But one big piece there is like with the fear of quantum computing is that it can relatively easily break the um, SHA-256 encryption that's used within the likes of Bitcoin and most other 
cryptocurrencies and blockchains. So in the future, if, if quantum computing comes in, even if you've deleted encryption keys, that encryption could be broken and the data could be exposed as more yes. sophisticated technology comes. So yeah, I think we there's there's a lot in there. It's going to be interesting to see how that develops, but all of this is going to be very much new territory for people creating legislation and also even just thinking about this from a tech perspective. Yeah. And speaking of legislation, per usual, as we sort of, you know, discuss the ways that the space can evolve and be regulated or or not regulated, a, a proposed alternative to uh, the the uh encryption key, decryption key deletion that the researchers from the University of Cambridge and Queen Mary University had proposed was that instead uh, legislators could create more clear guidelines for blockchain solutions. And so the process, process, process could become a little bit simpler for everyone. So you could imagine like in one potential scenario, um, if they were, you know, if the legislation were to go in this direction, instead of explicitly sharing user data with companies, users would only give their permission to access their information from the blockchain. And this is actually a concept that we have discussed at pretty good length um, through, throughout the, the course of this show. Uh, so we won't dive too deeply into like all of the, the potential threats and also benefits from an approach like this. But theoretically, what you could say is that uh, the right to be forgotten could be designed as an integral part of the system so that the user would provide the key to their data and then they could literally revoke that key at any time. And therefore, businesses would not have to store anything on a corporate central database. And thus, they would not actually be bound by some of the compliance rules that GDPR imposes on them to begin with, because the the right to be forgotten, which is sort of a critical part of the law, is actually built into the system itself, and the users have uh, physical control and possession of their data. Yeah, and I think that's the dream, right? Is that we we that's put the, the ownership of data back to the individual, so that actually we don't need laws like GDPR because everybody owns their own stuff, and you don't need to worry about the right to be forgotten because. You own your data and it's in control by yourself at, at all times. So moving on uh, to more sort of world impacting blockchain tech, uh, we were reading an interesting report by the World Economic Forum, which said, quote, blockchain can change the face of renewable energy in Africa. Here's how. Mm. Um, so this is, this, there's like this, it's, again, a, another interesting sort of thought experiment um, from the World Economic Forum, which outlined how blockchain-based solutions may aid in providing reliable energy access and consumption in Africa, which is a place where the demand for electricity largely exceeds the supply. Yeah. Uh, and this is this is a real problem. Yeah, I, I I could not, but well, I say I can't believe. I I can absolutely believe some of the stats. I think it was more quite um quite sobering to to see that in various parts of Africa, like how far they still need to come in terms of infrastructure to even just having basic access to electricity. So I think like. Nigeria was one that was pulled out, um, which arguably is one of the more developed nations within Africa. And it has a sh shortage of 173,000 megawatts. Um, and the total national need 
uh, is around like 180 megawatts. This this stat, though, this one really blew my mind, is that in rural areas of Rwanda, and that's where over 70% of the population lives, uh, only 18% of the population has access to electricity. So, yeah. so the entirety of the rest of the uh, Rwandan rural population uh, population has no access to electricity at all and this is the same in nearly all most like sub-saharan african countries yeah it's uh and and like the the thing that that 18 percent stat doesn't fully communicate is that that's just whether or not they have that part of the population has access to it in the first place but the quality of that access can vary greatly depending on the local infrastructure so uh researchers me and here's me uh complaining about my wi-fi signal (laughs) i know man well you know it's it is okay to complain because boston (laughs) boston subsidized i we don't need to go off on on a tangent here damn you about telecommunications companies but that is a problem too we can solve both of these problems (laughs) but interestingly the easiest and the most affordable way uh, that researchers have found to get electricity to rural communities in Africa is actually with a decentralized energy source, such as a solar PV or wind energy. But still, the market penetration of green energy in Africa is very low. And this is partially because the success of electrification plants has typically been measured on the number of connections made and megawatts installed rather than the end use of that power. Mm. So it doesn't always optimize for getting more people on the grid and keeping them connected to that grid uh, as long and, and reliably as possible. Well, it just that means that's, said, that's just not going to optimize for having a wider distribution, right? Like it's just going to silo in to like you could it dramatically increase the number of like connections and megawatts installed in one small region, which it sounds like is what's happening for w- within some of the stats that we were reading out. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, predictably, the measurement models are tilting a little bit more now toward demand management and distribution. So what they'll be doing is taking a look at end use and consistency of connectivity, specifically to a level that can boost productivity. Because if you think about it, if if you technically have, like if you're in that 18% that technically has connectivity to electricity in rural Rwanda, but that connectivity only lasts for like two or three hours a day and maybe it's in 30 to 45 minute bursts that are unpredictable. I'm just laying out a potential scenario here. Um, Of course, this varies across the, the African continent. But uh, it, it, say that that's, that's your situation. It's very difficult to become productive with uh, unreliable electricity, right? Um, so you could imagine, you know, you, you try to start doing something that depends on electricity and you're, you're, you're 30 minutes into it and then you lose electricity and then maybe you won't get power for another two hours. That's a big problem. Mm. So these new measurement models are looking to uh, try to measure connectivity uh, at a level that will boost productivity. This has classically been very, very difficult to measure. Uh, However, researchers do believe that blockchain technology 
could help. I know that this this may feel like another one of those stories where it's like just blockchain is the solution and, and we, we can't explain how, but somehow it is, right? Um, but theoretically, it could be used to establish an auditable encrypted ledger that records energy consumption, credit histories, which are actually relevant in um, sub-Saharan Africa, where uh, there is a need for access financing. Mm -hmm. And then it could also help with energy trading between households, which would give consumers more control of their energy requirements and consumption. So you could this, imagine- This is interesting. Yes. Yeah, the trading between households. I, I think that we, uh, I remember um, we were talking about some of the various like IOT, uh, Internet of Things, that is, slash blockchain projects. I think like IOTA was one, maybe uh, actually Power Ledger was another one that came up last year. And they were pretty much exclusively focused on, at least Power Ledger was. I think they're based over in Australia, actually, if I'm correct. And they are focused on creating a ledger that enables you to trade energy, in particular excess energy between other individuals and it's primarily um other households that you could do some of this stuff with um i guess one of my things i think this sounds fantastic i think that's great my biggest kind of area of pessimism maybe is how how does all of this get powered right it's like what does does this ledger run on a proof of work blockchain and the it's having to be powered by a ton of like uh, nodes and mining that's like highly energy uh, consuming. Yeah, that's I, yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's a that's a big problem, and um, they they actually do address that a bit in the report. Mm -hmm. um, interestingly, bringing up concepts like proof of space, um, yeah. which yeah, which we have d discussed in the past, like you know occupying um, empty hard drive space. But that is you're right. That's a major barrier theoretically to implementing something like this. Not to mention, you know, you can imagine that the IT infrastructure is similarly in a difficult position in many parts of sub-Saharan Africa. Yeah. And so, you know, that would be a compounding issue with trying to implement something as, you know, cutting edge, you could say, as blockchain technology. But yeah. I think it is an interesting sort of theory that they're poking at here around saying, okay, you know, what are the, the the things that we need to measure as a proxy for understanding good electricity connectivity um, so that, I, I, you know, we didn't dive into this, but a, a lot of these, these problems with like the way that things are measured and reported as well as like rampant uh, corruption Ugh, in, yeah. you know, local and, and national governments um, tied in with companies that will do crazy things like what Matt was saying, you know, just uh, put a ton of, of electric connectivity in you know one one specific place and then use all of the budget for that and then a bunch is going to be left over and 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 that becomes like excess uh, profit for the company uh, on the backs of the the tax paying base and all of this stuff big problems um basically due to issues in in the way that the success of these programs are measured and so i i like the idea of poking at like you know it could this help measure real connectivity that actually boosts productivity better? And then could we 
use it to help people trade electricity amongst each other. Very interesting. Yeah. And I think we we talked about this last week, right? Like the blockchain for good stuff and how with different charities, especially in uh, less developed countries where aid is being sent over and there's no audit trail, there's no way to trace this. And it's prone for corruption, not just on the side of the, the charities, but when that money lands into the, the nation or the area that or the company that needs to help distribute it without having something that's public and visible and auditable, it it can create chaos. And I mean, in areas of uh, especially sub-Saharan Africa, where there is such a low level of electrification, the that it makes this even more difficult. And yeah. one thing that I would say is like I've read quite a bit about, in particular, Africa and uh, southern India and the the, the obviously like huge growing markets from a technology point of view. But one of the big things that they do tout is enormous growth in usage of mobile devices and in particular mobile payments. And I think that's another area where there is already some basic infrastructure in place that people can potentially adopt a technology that's powered by blockchain and without necessarily having access to a ton of uh, the, the kind of resources that the let's say the more western world is just uh, taken for granted. Yep. So, I'll leave us with one interesting quote from this report which I think sums up the World Economics Forum's perspective on this. And they said, "Moves to achieve universal energy access for all in Africa cannot be superficial. The commitment to electrification success should be strengthened with a mutually beneficial collaboration of public and private entities. Successful collaboration between these players will come from shared interests, openness and in investments and the use of innovative solutions and there should be active participation of citizens too. So I think that what they're stressing there is that the the technology which they're referring to here as innovative solutions is just one part of uh, one puzzle piece mm. in a, a very big puzzle that all needs to come together in order for this to work. 100%. Yeah, I think we can we can definitely keep a track. And I think maybe we could do an even deeper dive into some of the different initiatives that are going on in Africa and some future episodes. And that's all we have time for for today's episode, though. So make sure you do join us next week for another episode of the Decrypting Crypto podcast. Thanks for listening. If you love this episode and want to show both myself and Austin your appreciation, we'd love it if you could spend some of your time adding a quick review on the iTunes store or your favorite podcasting platform. You can also check out and visit us at thecoinoffering.com. Follow us on Twitter at the coin offering and you know what you want to just shoot us a quick email chat to us make suggestions tell us how terrible we are send us an email at podcast at thecoinoffering.com thanks and hope you enjoy the next episode the contents of the decrypting crypto podcast should not be used and are not intended as investment advice Please do your own due diligence before making any investment, cryptocurrency or otherwise.